supersized two-part Empire podcast this week. We have four, count them, four interviews, hence the bumper-sized two-part thing. There's David Thewlis, Rosamund Pike, Richard Armitage, and Judd Apatow. Plus, usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast has suddenly become the longest two-parter since Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Which reminds me, we must talk about the portal scene, guys. That's a good idea. Right One of these days. <laughs> One of these days, we will talk about the portal scene. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week, yes, indeed, for the first time ever, is brought to you in two parts because there's just too much damn pod to go around. So last week, you'll recall, I had a four-guest problem for this week. Well, sadly, Delroy Lindo, star of The Five Bloods, didn't happen, hasn't happened yet. We're trying to make it happen. But I also had one interview held over from last week because uh, you may recall the last week's podcast was a little late. There was an editing nightmare. Someone forgot to press record, <laughs> didn't they? Unnamed person in this virtual room. So it took a while. I refuse to answer on the ground that my answer may incriminate me. <laughs> <laughs> so someone had to uh, to piece it together from backups and bits of and, and you know using bits of sticky tape and whatnot. It was it, it it took a while. Was it like CSI or something like that where they use they try and sort of dial up the volume to read lips and sort of synthesize <laughs> what people were saying because there's no audio recording. I was going computer enhance enhance that bit. <laughs> Wait, I'm on set something there in the background. You can hear. There's an L train in the background. He must be in Chicago. It was like that. It was exactly like that. Uh, anyway, so because of that, I've moved David Thewlis from last week into this week. So we, we once again, we have the four guest problem. So once again, you don't want a three-hour pod. Here we are. Two parts, it is. And this week, we're coming to you from lockdown yet again, although the British government has seen fit to start relaxing lockdown laws a little bit. Cinemas are still in course to reopen soon. Football is a mere few days away. And even though I and my colleagues of such lethal cunning are still doing this from our separate home offices and living quarters, we have all moved our microphones one inch closer to each other. <laughs> and at this rate, we'll be in the same room by Christmas. Christmas 2023, that is. <laughs> anyway, who are those three colleagues of such lethal cunning? I hear you cry. You've already heard them speak uh, because it's very much a case of second first. Same as the first. It's the same trio as last week. I have named an unchanged side. So we have Geek Queen. I'm, I'm looking at your squad cast names here. We have Geek Queen, Wonder Woman 2020, a.k.a. Helen O'Hara. Hello. Yes, I'm getting impatient for Wonder Woman 1984. So I felt I'd pay tribute uh, in my <laughs> in my name. I would have felt that they would have just shown it to you by now. I feel like they should have done. I mean, I saw, <laughs> let's be honest, a bit a while back, but I haven't seen oh. enough. Which bit? The arm? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we have Dreadful Sea Unit, um, and he is known today as the last of me, James Dyer. Hello, Christopher. Yes, this, this, is, uh, this is a reference to my epic The Last of Us Part 2 review, which went live on the Empire website this morning. I mean, I say this morning, this morning when we go out, this morning now as we record, I haven't actually finished it, but I, I'm reasonably confident I will have finished it by the time people hear this. Computer, translate into English. <laughs> Computer, make readable. It, it's broken me. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Is it good though? I can't say. I'm still embargoed until tomorrow when this goes out. <laughs> but you're not embargoed now, are you, Bellend? Is it good? Yes, I can say that it is a bit good. A bit good. A bit good. All right. A bit good. Read my incredibly long, sprawling, rambling review. Or just skip to the end. 
Five stars. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, because technically speaking, as we're recording this, it is 11.18 on a Thursday morning. We're all technically speaking under embargo for Artemis Fowl, but we're not going to respect that when we talk about it later on because we're going out after the embargo. Foul play. <laughs> I suspect foul play. Uh, and last but not least, we have the best dressed man in film journalism, although he is putting that title at risk today. Uh, <laughs> it is... His squad cast name is Stormin Warman, but you know him best as Amon Warman. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Look, I uh, the shirt I think is great. I'm just a little bit cold, so I'm wearing a little t- tracksuit thing. It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's June I still 11. retain my title. I'm still the best dressed man in journalism. I mean, in fairness, there's not a lot of competition there. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's a it's a bold footlocker vibe you've got going on there, but I respect it. <laughs> Thank you, James. Hey, Stella McCartney works with Adidas, all right? I mean, it's it's okay. Listen, in terms of the best-dressed film journalist, uh, Amon is obviously up there. He is in contention. There's no question about that. Um, Robbie Collin. Robbie Collin. Dresses well mm. also. He does dress yep. very well. Um, he has an excellent array of colourful socks. He does. Mm. And I have to say, big shout-out to our very own Kim Newman. Oh, yeah, for sure. No one has a personal yeah. style like Kim Newman. He can literally rock an opera cloak, and not very many people can say that. I don't know, Amon, maybe you can, but I haven't seen you try it yet so there's a bridge still to go clearly we all need to sell this with guns at dawn i mean that's the only way <laughs> waistcoats at dawn <laughs> i have i have a waistcoat okay <laughs> got the response to sorry quite frankly didn't you? Uh, anyway Uh, Enough of this preamble, we have a lot to get through. So uh, we are going to start with the fact section, the beloved fact section, uh, which a listener has requested this week be called Love Factually. And whilst I hate that movie, I can't resist a good pun. So yes, indeed, Love Factually it is. A couple of things before we start. Um, More listeners have been actually keeping track of the scores in this thing. So in case you don't know what this is, in case you're new to the show, uh, every week I ask the three colleagues of such lethal cunning to bring me an incredible, arcane, obscure movie fact that hopefully I won't know. And then I, I give a point to who I deem to be the winner that week. So... Turns out we've been doing this now for 10 weeks. <laughs> Helen is in the lead Ooh. with five points. James is second with four points. The fourth chair, the rotating fourth chair, has three points. Amon has been on here twice now and has, he got a point last week, but that was yeah, like a sympathy point. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if he can win this week. So we're going we're gonna to get out in a second. But also, uh, this week we can finally confirm why Helen for the last 10 weeks, has been uh, throwing out ye oldy timey movie facts uh, for this. Uh, Helen, do you want to take it away? Why, why have you been uh, spouting uh, old stuff? <laughs> I have been um, doing a lot of research because I'm working on a new book, which is a lot more wordy, frankly, than the two I did before, which were kind of, you know, they were listicle books in a way. They were, they were sort of, you know, here are 50 films, here are some superhero franchises, and just sort of, sort of writing about each one individually. This is like a proper book with no pictures, um, which is obviously <laughs> a terrifying prospect to have to write. But um, it's called Women versus Hollywood, and it is um, a kind of past, present and future about women in Hollywood, about... You know, the fact that there were women in the silent era directing and producing and editing and writing and every single job you can think of, and that they gradually got pushed out as Hollywood became more kind of corporates. 
and have essentially been trying to fight their way back in ever since with varying degrees of success. So it's kind of, I've been doing interviews, I've been reading all the history books, I've been trying to get to grips with, you know, a hundred years of Hollywood history. No big deal. It's fine. <laughs> um, especially with the libraries closed. It's great. Oh, what timing. Um, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. But it's coming out from Little Brown uh, next February. We were going to do a proper like announcement once the cover was finalized and everything. But sadly, someone spotted the link on uh, Amazon, which is put up as a, you know, pre-order thing way, way in advance and kind of uh, got in ahead of us. So, uh, so yeah, but mm. I haven't quite finished writing it yet, but I'm getting there. I've been doing some very cool interviews with people this week. And um, yeah, I suddenly feel like it might get finished, which is a better place than I was in about five or six weeks ago. Yeah, listen to me. If you buy a book and it finishes mid-sentence after only five chapters, <laughs> you, you, you want a refund. You're I mean, not happy you know, about it that. depends how good the chapters are, hopefully. so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, listen, uh, we've been watching you slowly have a breakdown over this thing Thank for you, the Jesse. last few months. So uh, I'm, I'm delighted that it's out in the open and uh, that we're going to get a chance to, to read it. Uh, you should also mention point. that, Helen, you also wrote a comic. I did write a comic. Yes. Um, it's in a collection called Smash, um, which is out from, uh, I think it's, well, it's published by Rebellion, but I think they're linked with 2000 AD and I don't quite understand how. But um, it is the origin story of a character called Thunderbolt the Avenger, not those ones. Um, Thunderbolt <laughs> was a British comic character in the 1960s and he was kind of reinvented a few years ago as a, a separate incarnation played by a different woman, Mary Lansdon. It, he, he started as Mick Riley, now it's Mary. And they, they basically tasked me to try and do her origin story. So that was kind of a terrifying prospect because it turns out it's really hard to write comics. And I have, I mean, I had a lot of respect for people who do it before I went into this. I now have so much more respect because it is so <laughs> difficult to try and get you know, action and character and an exciting anything into into such a short space of time. Um, so I've done my best and I hope I haven't let anybody down. And uh, yeah, that's in the Smash collection, which came out this week. So if you want to buy that, that's out this week. And if you want to buy Helen's book, which I believe is called I've Done My Best and I Hope I Haven't Let Anyone Down. That's the name of the book, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Did you consider calling it Helen O'Hara's Old Timey Wimey Hollywood Stuff. Stuff, yes. Um, for some reason, my editor, Amanda Keats, thought that was not a good idea. Go figure. Well, that's an absolute disgrace. I know. But anyway, that is available right now. If you want to pre-order Helen's book on Amazon, it is available. Uh, and I, uh, uh, Helen assures us it will be finished in time for, <laughs> for delivery by next February. Uh, very, very exciting indeed. And uh, Helen, I have to say... I had no idea this was a subject in which you were interested. What, women in film? I know, I know. I, I keep it no. pretty quiet. Yeah, had completely passed me by. Anyway, shall we have a fact? Uh, <laughs> sure. Let's have a fact. Let's start with you, Helen. In celebration of your incredible book news, mm. let's start with you. What recycled bump have you got for us this week? <laughs> I have a very unexciting fact, actually. Um, I, I was interested to read about, um, I was reading about Howard Hughes a little bit this week, who, of course, was um, a film producer, director, head of RKO Pictures at one point, an inventor. He was, of course, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in that Martin Scorsese film, The Aviator. Um, but this kind of fact kind of takes place in the bit that the film sort of skipped over between where where he was dating like Kate Blanchett and where he stopped cutting his toenails and became a total lunatic weirdo. Um, in between those times, he kind of kept 
starlets, he kind of kept wonder, wannabe actresses on retainer and mm. was incredibly controlling over every aspect of their lives. So he would give them a small salary and he would sort of dangle the possibility of putting them in a film, but usually wouldn't. Um, and a bit like the Playboy bunnies sometimes would be in, in history, they were basically kept in seclusion in little um, little cottages near his house. Um, they very rarely met him. When they did, they had to be bathed in antiseptic soap beforehand because he was already massively germaphobic. They had to wear white gloves when shaking hands with him because again, germaphobia. And they had to also keep to these inc insane daily routines. So they had to rise at seven, immediately shower, then put on their makeup. Then a maid would bring them breakfast. And at eight o'clock, a driver took them to the studio for dancing lessons and acting lessons. In the afternoon, they were allowed to rest and watch TV. They could shop once a week, no more than that. Um, and in the evenings, they went to the restaurants that Hughes told them to go to with men that he chose to escort them. Even the food they ate was decided by him. And if their families wanted to see them, they had to make an appointment. And yeah, the, the cars that drove them from place to place, contrary to the film with um, Lily Collins and um, Alden Ehrenreich, um, were mostly driven by gay men because he thought that they wouldn't, you know, cause him any problems because he wanted to kind of keep them for himself. Anyway, I just thought that was one of the creepiest stories I'd ever heard. So I thought I'd share it with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Harold, you always do this. You're like, uh, you know, my, my, my fact is so unexciting. And then well, you just come up with that. You know, there's no smoking gun here. There's no like, you know, and then one of them shot him, you know, which would have, I felt, film made it more fun. But uh, you could add it, actually. I mean, he is and dead, then so. one of them shot him and now he's there you dead. Go. Helen wins. Point to Helen. Uh, uh, might as well not bother listening to the rest of the facts now. Helen has Howard Hughes being Excellent. murdered. Let's move on to the next section, which is news. <laughs> I'm on. You next. Yeah. So my fact, uh, as has been the case for uh, at least a couple of them, uh, has to do with basketball a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. It's still a film fact. Still a film fact. It actually has to do with Uncut Gems, uh, that uh, okay. 2019 movie, which we mm -hmm. all loved. Obviously, Kevin Garnett is the basketball player uh, uh -huh. in that movie. Uh Boston Celtics legend, uh, but he, it, all, it almost wasn't Kevin Garnett who was cast uh, as the basketball player. It was almost going to be the late, great Kobe Bryant um, oh, in wow. the role. And the plot was actually going to be a bit different as well, because the plot was going to evolve around his 60-point game at Madison Square Garden, one of his greatest games ever. And the gem was going to be a youth elixir that could restore him to his early years in the NBA. That was going to be the plot. Whoa. Yeah. Sorry, that, that, that sounds like a movie Adam Sandler would make on Netflix. <laughs> I know that some people think that Uncut Gems is a Netflix movie, but it yeah. kind of isn't. Yeah. They picked it up. But yeah. it, this feels like The Ridiculous Six. This feels like the sort of high concept, I'm a merman. I've discovered a gem that is the, the key to eternal youth. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, like literally that, or like you know, they believed literally it was that. that. Literally wow. that. Um, like he, uh, the Safety brothers, they spent a couple of weeks sort of you know writing this, but then uh, the word came down that Kobe's not interested in acting; he wants to direct. Um, this is actually the second film that Kobe Bryant had turned down acting in. The first, Spike Lee came to him initially for He Got Game, and Kobe turned him down. That's why he went to <gasps> Ray Allen in the end, who was in that movie. Short and sweet, that is my fact. That's pretty great. Where did you learn that? Was it an interview with the Safety Brothers or? Yep, Safety Brothers. 
Interesting. Hmm. Did not know that. Jimbo. So. Oh, God. Here we I go. have had. No, no, no. This is, this is not the so <laughs> I'm on. about to talk in a monologue for the next 20 minutes. Second, so I'm going to put a stopwatch on the screen. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Computer. No, no, timer. No, no. <laughs> there we go. It's not that. I was about to simply say that. Obviously, I have been writing a review, which has taken up a lot of my time. So I did not have time to properly <laughs> find a fact. So you, you stuck your head outside the door and went into a young street urchin. Does you anybody know anything? Is, is that giant fact hanging in the window of the shop next yeah. door? The one as big as me? Yes. Oh, what a marvellous boy. Here is a yes. shilling. Go and buy it for me. That's exactly what happened. Uh, no, but I think since Helen has not had to find a fact for radio, she, she, she's been pillaging her book for information and just regurgitating it on this podcast. I feel that I too can pillage shit that I've done elsewhere and just regurgitate it in a sort of environmentally friendly fashion. So oh my God. I dug out the transcript of my two-day-long like hanging out with Arnold Schwarzenegger interview, uh, and I found a section in it which I did with him on myth-busting, uh, which I don't believe I ran most of in the feature. So I asked him a load of slightly random questions that I pulled out of my ass. I love to myth-bust. I love to bust those myths. That's exactly what happened. So the first question I asked him were, were you the first choice to play Robocop? Now, do you think that was true, or do you think that was false? Oh, this is a fun uh, element of it. Okay, oh. I didn't expect it to go off in this direction. Uh, I think it is false. And you would be correct. He's no, it's not true. Was his answer to that? So no, he was not the first choice of her Robocop. Now, second thing I asked him: Did you turn down the lead in Die Hard? True or false? My no was offered to him at one point. So yes. Technically, no, he didn't turn it down. He said that, and this is absolutely true, he said that Joel Silver came up to him and talked to him about it. He said at that point there wasn't a script. Uh, he said there was no doubt, he said it was unfinished. Uh, they, someone gave it to him and said, would you like to play it? Uh, and then he said he was a bit ambivalent. He said, no, I need a finished script for this. And Joel Silver was apparently quite pissed off and went to uh, Bruce Willis. That was, that was his answer to that. Next question. Okay. And I think you know the answer to this one because I think we've discussed it. <laughs> Did he turn down? the role of Dr. Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock. What do you think, guys? Oh, I'm not getting involved. No, these are questions for you. <laughs> I would say false. I say true. It's kind of true. So according, <laughs> according to Arnold, Maybe according to Arnold... <laughs> This is absolutely true. Like and I'm reading this. I'm reading this. I'm reading this. Don Simpson came to him in his trailer. He said, Don Simpson came to me in my trailer, totally stoned, lawyers. <laughs> Wiped out, he says, He's dead with now. 85 pages of handwritten notes and shit on a piece of paper. And says, here, look at this script, but don't read it. Just here's the premises, and will you do it? And Arnold says, he was all over the place. I said, I can't make a commitment. Based on this, you haven't even got a proper script. Why don't you look at it some more, develop it, and come back to me? He said he was very upset. He left his trailer and cast Nicolas Cage. Wow. Because obviously, because you get turned on by Arnold Schwarzenegger, your mind immediately goes to Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, here's another question. Arnold Schwarzenegger paints watercolours. True or false? I can believe that. Okay, well, I, kn I know Stallone does. I know Nick Frost does, because he's been putting them on his Instagram. Hmm. So in the fan diagram of Stallone and Schwarzenegger, Nick Frost is right in the middle. So I'm going to go, <laughs> I don't know what that means. So what does that mean? Uh, by the way, this would be a terrible round on the chase. Uh, you can't just go, it's kind of true. I'm going to say, uh, no, he doesn't. He does, though he favours acrylics. He did a lot of art classes in Austria when he was a child. Right, 
Next one. In his house, oh boy. Are we there is a points giant... This, by the way? No. Yes. There is a giant naked statue of him in the hallway. Uh, my hallway or his? <laughs> Your hallway and his. His in this case. There is a giant statue, naked statue of Arnold Schwarzenegger in my hallway. This is true. Um, Does he have one, though? Yes. He says to me, no, it's not true. And then there was a pause. He goes, it's a painting. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Frost did it. <laughs> It's by Leroy Neiman, who's an American artist. But yes, it is a uh, it is a, a naked painting of Arnold in the hallway. Uh, okay, okay, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, oh, if Jim Cameron's Spider-Man had gone ahead, Arnold would have played Dr. Octopus. True or false? True. 100% true. They had talked about it, but it never got off the ground. He was quite disappointed. Okay, one more. He turned down Adam Baldwin's role as Animal Mother in Full Metal Jacket. True or false? False. 100% true. He did turn it down because he didn't have the time to do it. That's bullshit. That's what he said. He <laughs> would not lie to bullshit. me. He would not lie to me. What are you talking about? There is no um, way Stanley Kubrick would have offered that role. He was a major, major star by that point. Don't know what to tell you. Arnold wouldn't lie. My close personal friend, Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> would not lie to me. Um, I also asked him about a recurring dream he has when he starts a new project where he wakes up and he's completely unprepared, which he still has. And he, he told me an insane dream that he had while taking uh, uh, drugs to, like legal drugs, to uh, to quit <laughs> cigar smoking. And he had vivid dreams about murdering people and lions and stuff, which was quite funny. Wow. So he said one of the things that happens when you're governor, because he's obviously governor of California, is you have to give gifts to people when they come visit. So dignitaries will come and visit you, like other president's the premier of china i think visited him at one point and you have to have something to give them some people give pens some people give all sorts of things like that so he wanted to do something slightly different he wanted to mix it up a bit because people expect that when you see a governor who was also a hollywood icon so he put together a box set of his favorite movies and a little bronze box and he would give they had 500 of them made and he would give them to dignitaries when they came to visit so and he said also because they would fly over and they'd have time to watch movies on the aircraft so he put together a box set and his favorite movies in that box set are the following ben-hur dr shivago fantasia yes really i love the, the bit where the rules it comes to life <laughs> <laughs> the godfather mm -hmm. high noon mm -hmm. lawrence of arabia mm -hmm. The Sound of Music, Titanic, <laughs> Terminator 2, and Twins, because obviously. Uh, and, he would, and he would give that to visiting dignitaries. And that's, I mean, that's a solid box set. You'd be happy with that. I have one. He gave me one, oh my which God. is very nice of him. Unfortunately, DVD, not Blu-ray. Fuck that. <laughs> I thought you, and I thought you were his close personal friend. I know, I know. It's like, seriously, not even HD? For fuck's sake. Never punch a gift horse in the mouth, James. <laughs> and that rambling collection of facts and half facts is my attempt at this section this week. Oh, I really need to collect my thoughts after that, um, because that was useful. And there was a point system within that as well. So technically speaking, I got five points there, so I'm already in the lead. <laughs> So much to get into there. Uh, technically speaking, I got five points within that, so I am now in the lead. Sorry, Helen. Uh, hmm. But looking at it, Helen, yours was a decent fact, but it has been popularized in the 2016 film Rules Don't Apply, written and directed and starring mm. Warren Beatty. If you want to listen to an in-depth Warren Beatty special where I talked to him about that movie and his illustrious career, then you can check it out on the podcast feed. Hmm. So, Helen, this week you don't win. I'm sorry. Hooray. <laughs> that wasn't the reaction I was going for. <laughs> James, you assailed us with facts. You bombarded us with facts. It was a fact-a-palooza. It was a fact pinata. However, I knew a lot of them. 
<laughs> so you're disqualified. <laughs> so you're disqualified. Um, which leaves Amon, who, if you were watching my face when he uh, hit me with that fact, I, my face went, oh? Because I genuinely did not know that. So Amon, finally, at the third time of asking, you have been successful. Next time, pick another sport. Hey, hold on. No, hold on. Wait one second. Helen's allowed to do old tiny facts for like how many how hey. many weeks? I could do basketball facts from now until Kingdom Come. I think that's only fair. This is true. I'm covering like a hundred years of Hollywood history here. <laughs> All right, Helen. Okay, Helen, next time you do the basketball fact, I'm on you do the old tiny Hollywood fact. <laughs> We'll do that. But anyway, well done, Amon. You have a point on the board. Well done. The fourth, fourth chair. chair. Making a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get a t-shirt printed with team fourth chair, we should start selling it as official Empire Podcast merchandise. They will sell literally in their ones. Um, it's going to be huge. Uh, so this means the fourth chair has drawn level with James on four points. Very, very exciting. Well done, everybody. We got through that segment. Time now for our first interview of four. And this was held over from last week because I was having a nervous break down. Anyway, it is the wonderful British character actor David Thewlis, uh, who, of course, stars in Atom Goyan's new movie, Guest of Honour, which we reviewed last week. We weren't that up in the film, but we're very up on his performance and Mr. Thewlis in general. Uh, this was a lot of fun, this interview. I've, I'm trying to pare this down to a decent length because we spoke for about 45 minutes. Uh, had a right old giggle. He's in lockdown. He's very, very funny. He's very, very good on his career. Talked about a load of stuff, what he's doing in lockdown, and of course, his status as the most decapitated man in movies lots of fun this one do please enjoy delighted to be joined on the empire podcast in lockdown of course uh, socially distant would expect nothing less uh, by the star of guest of honor mr david thewlis how are you sir i'm very very well indeed thank you very much excellent where are you where are you locking down i'm in um in, i'm in a place called sunningdale which is near ascot windsor uh, area so I, I got okay. out of, I've got a place in London, but I got out of there pretty much on the day of lockdown. So I thought I don't want to spend it in London. So I'm I'm here. I've been here all the time. I've not gone anywhere. I've been very good. I've obeyed all the rules, done as I was told, <laughs> and uh, I've not got it. So it must work. What are you doing to keep your keep your hand in? Are you doing anything or? Well, well I, I I have been I have been recording episodes of uh, Big Mouth playing the Shane oh, good. Um because that can be done remotely by everybody, and it can be animated and done post-production and uh we got a memo the other day where we had to list all the possibilities of what we had the equipment we had so i had to say this microphone this pop shield the interface i've got and we were asked if we had a closet um <laughs> and, and, and like like nick kroll and john mulaney have got yes big walking closet all hollywood closets like that okay i do have a closet, very small but uh my dignity will be challenged if i have to get into a closet to record uh, the shame wizard on big mouth but it seems quite fitting that should be the case so that's what i've been doing professionally and i've been cooking for the first time in my life and i've been playing guitar like never before just like like i it's, it's surprised it's not in my hand now it's just always you know I've, I've got obsessed with i mean i've played for years since i was a kid but i've got much yeah. better these past four months what's what's been what's been the barrier for you what, what, have, what have you improved that on the guitar well for years i was a rhythm guitarist in a band when i was i was uh in my teens and i just stayed as a rhythm guitarist you know and i've just played people's houses and and sang with girlfriends etc so it's just you know it's easy to do all the chords and i never went beyond that but then now i find that on youtube it's got so many great people teaching you 
guitar. So I've been learning lead and blues and, and all kinds of finger picking styles. And you know, you can you can have a blues lesson from BB King, or I've just noticed that Laura Marling is teaching you all the chords to her new album. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, she's obviously she's had an album come out while she's in lockdown. And obviously, someone's <laughs> got like, why don't you just <laughs> teach everybody all the chords? And I'm like, well, that's fantastic. So I've been looking for a particular song of hers. To, to learn, and I got someone showing it in a very crappy way. And then I thought, actually, Laura Marling's actually doing it. It's as if you, know, you, you have the Beatles showing you how to play, you know, get back. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't play the guitar as much as I used to. Um, yeah. I'm terrible, absolutely terrible at it. Right. But uh, I used to love getting the books of guitar tab. Yes. And, and then just opening it and going to your favorite song. And you're clearly a much better guitarist than I am. But I would like, I'd pick up a Beatles or an REM uh, book of tab. I'd flick to my favorite song and go, fuck that. And I'd, There's no way. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. beyond me. Yeah. Well, back in those days as well, when you bought a book and those books were quite expensive and you buy the complete hits of, uh, you know, Dylan or Beatles or whoever, and you'd only really play two of them. You know, when you were first starting out, it's like you've got this whole book and you're just learning how to play yesterday. And then you're not, you don't even do that very well, you know. So, so now it's, it's much, I recommend anyone to learn an instrument now on the, uh, I'm, I'm piano as well. I'm improving on piano, but just from great tutorials on YouTube and I've and just practice, practice. I've just been, my fingers are just rock hard, you know. It's, uh, that's, that's, that's been the highlight for me. I've become a much better musician. If you were at a, a party, the guitar came out, what's your go-to song? Oh, well, I I really try and avoid doing that for a start. I really, really haven't <laughs> done that for a long time. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those guys. I, I was one of those guys it. years ago where I, you know, would play Wonderwall. When I was doing a film called Seven Years in Tibet, and I remember having a sing-along with about 100 Buddhist monks up in the mountains in the Andes in Argentina <laughs> and singing Wonderwall with literally 100 Buddhist monks, including the Dalai Lama's sister, <laughs> and, and 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 they they were f pretty much force feeding me beer because it was a it was an insult not to drink it because it was a kind of a blessing and then I was playing a four string or three string Tibetan guitar and as they were chanting I had to drink as much beer as they I could while they were chanting and this chanting sort of turned into Wonderwall as well and um and I didn't I'm not even that big a drinker I didn't want to drink that much and I got, I got absolutely blasted and they of course weren't because they're they're Buddhist monks, you know, so it's only a vague memory, I must say, for understandable reasons. But that, that was that was wonderful. But I don't really get out of guitar. And if I do, I tend to play things of my own because I'm egotistical and I think my songs are better than anybody's. Amazing. Amazing. Don't ask me to sing one. No, no, no I'm not going to. We, we couldn't afford the royalties for one thing. But... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that that's awesome that you write your own stuff. That's that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but genuinely, I thought whenever um whenever you, you said Wonder, I thought, hang on, he's going to say Wonder Woman. He's going to say the theme from Wonder Woman. I thought that's, oh, yeah. that's egotistical, David. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although that riff they used in the trailer was pretty cool. I might learn to play it's, that. I don't know what it's that was. A, it's that's an electric cello. Was it? Is that what it was? Yeah. Ah, I should know that, shouldn't I? I should really know that information. Okay, well, Write that I've, down I've, I've learned that. for the next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next time I talk to you, what you've been doing in, in lockdown that's been going on for three years now, I'm learning the cello. <laughs> <laughs> and my go-to piece is that bit from Wonder Woman by Hans Zimmer. David uh, Thewlis performs songs from the movies of David Thewlis, I think. Yeah, in, in, in a wardrobe. <laughs> Three years into the lockdown. <laughs> well, you have you have one guaranteed purchase here, David. If you make you that go. album, I would be absolutely actually 
full disclosure, I'd stream it. But, uh, you know, at least go. the, the, I've got the, the intentions there. The intentions there. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of do, doing an album. I've, got, I've, I've, I've done some, like, stupid songs and a few things now. And mm. I did this film for uh, Craig Roberts with Sally Hawkins, and I play a musician in that, and I, I sing some ridiculous songs, very out of tune, and they're, they're very, very bad. Eternal Beauty. But Yeah, Eternal Beauty. It's fantastic. I yeah. really love it. I don't know when. Do you know when mm. that's coming out? We should find out when no. that's coming out, if anything's ever coming out. I'm going to call him this afternoon because it's long overdue to know what's going on with that. So I'm, I'm, uh, mm. yeah, I'm going to look into that. Anyway, I play this kind of old kind of punk in it who's, who's, who's in a band called Mike and the Truth Detectives. Uh, and he <laughs> invites Sally Hawkins to his gigs. He's got the old band back together. She turns up at the gig, but in fact, it's just him. Um, and he's, it's kind of a solo act. Um, I, and I sing, I, I sang songs that I wrote. I wrote because Craig asked me if I, because he's not a musician. So I, I wrote some songs for that. And they're very, very, very bad, but I think they could go on an album. And then I just did a thing called Bark Skins in Canada. In, I'm, I'm a 17th century feudal French landlord where I sing some made-up French folk songs of the period. And they're <laughs> on an album. They're just going on an album. And then I sing as the Shame Wizard in Big Man. So I think I could have a compilation <laughs> of a few things. And I'm sure over the years I've sang in other things. So it could be just a very – it could be a very bad album. But I'd like that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if you sing in, in Naked. I, I, I do. I do. I sing Take Me Back to Manchester When It's Raining which Mike Lee taught to me and Leslie Sharp. And it's a, take me back to Manchester when it's raining. I want to wet my feet in Albert Square. I'm all agog for a good thick fog. Uh, I can't remember the rest. But uh, yes, so, so that's on the album. That'll be that'll probably end of side one, I think. And I also sing it <laughs> in another Mike Lee film uh, called The Short and Curl. It's the first time I ever worked with him. I sing a song, which I will sing now, because you'll see why. It says, uh, mm. I'll sing you a song that isn't very long. In fact, it ends right here. And that's, <laughs> that was my first, that's my first uh, track. Talking of Naked brings us to, to, to talk of working with, with Mike Lee. And mm. I read a quote from you where you said that Mike Lee had kind of spoiled you for other directors mm. um, because of that, because of the experience of, of working on those, those movies and the way he works, the, yeah. the incredible way, that his incredible method it works. Um, but over the years, I mean, have you had directors who've matched up? I imagine Adam McGoyan is is someone in that ballpark in terms of, you know. Yes, very much. I mean, saying that about Mike, spoiling me for other directors that certainly was the case in 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 terms of it gave me a lot of rules that mike were well, mike's rules about certain things one does and does not want to always speaking about the character in the in the in the third person being one of the chief ones but i also got then asked to do a oh i was always the guy who was like oh you're very good at improvisation let's improvise this scene and i had all kinds of directors asking me to improvise stuff the fact is when you work with mike you don't just improvise out of the blue you improvise with six months research you know so that's why it's so um um, um very you know involved um so i yeah i i, th I think yeah atom certainly is is uh is is up there uh, with one of the real real greats I've, I've worked with especially in terms of working for a director who's great with actors you know because not all of them are some of some wonderful big 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 directors who were just not always that great at you know i won't go into names but talking to talking to actors it's not their thing you know mm. and that's fair enough sometimes because i think half the trick is is um is, is in the casting much of the time there's some actors mm. who are just they're just great you just let, wind them up and let them go and uh, you don't feel like i i did a directed a short film once with kathy burke and bob Pugh. 
And I hardly spoke to those two because they just did it. And it was like, well, I've got no ideas how to make these two better because they're just fantastic. They're doing everything I could imagine I could want them to do. Um, but At Atom is 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 a, a, a one of those directors who, in between takes, you have significant conversations whereby you go into the next take with new ideas. Not necessarily, you know, that the first take won't be used, but it'd be like, well, let's try this now, let's try this now, let's try this now. And that's, I, I love that because I'm very happy to, I'm very happy to do lots of takes on anything I ever do. Uh, cause I just think you can't go wrong. You can, you know, and you get braver and braver. You think, if you think you've got two or three good takes in the can or even just one very good take in the can, it's like, well, mm. let's do more because now I'm going to try something, you know, that may be just ridiculous, but it may just be, uh, the one we use. So Atom's very much into doing that. And so how did this come your way? How did Atom enter your life? Um, uh, well, as usual, the script was sent, but I knew uh, Atom's work. And then he uh, he was coming back from, I think he'd been in Germany, and he was coming through London. He said, let's meet. We met in London outside the Covent Garden Hotel and had a glass of wine. And I, well, I think we just realized straight away we got on extremely, extremely well continues to this day I'd count him as one of my dearest friends in life um, which which I really wouldn't say about every director I've worked with at all uh, not that they're not all <laughs> wonderful but I mean some, I just feel I'll know Atom forever I just think we really uh, we're very close and really click um, and at that point actually the part wasn't mine because he was still trying to get money for the film and he still had to get approval for me and there was lots of other talks about casting other people so actually when we met it was like it wasn't like well it's great to meet you i can't wait to do this film it was like that but it was like we couldn't guarantee i would be doing the film but he i think when he met me had similar feelings and we we you know it was not long before it was confirmed but i'd say really for me it grew from a, a feeling of great friendship straight away almost immediately from the first hello does that then feed into how you work on the character, for example, Jim Jim Davis in, in the movie, which is interesting because that's the name of the creator of Garfield. Um, we should point out. Oh, is it? <laughs> this is you are not playing the creator of Garfield, oh, no. unless you are David, and I just missed it. No, well, I didn't know that. I wish I had known that because I might have put in some little reference to that. Oh, I, I could have had a, a cat instead of a rabbit. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, we, awesome. we, we might have to reshoot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've just worked with Jim Cameron. You know, it's reshooting so easy. Just get Atom, get on the volume, uh, put on yeah. the mocap suit. T -t Talking about cats, yeah, yeah, um, yes, I have. Yes, you know, I realised something this morning. I was just talking to my wife this morning because I've been talking about Avatar because obviously people are asking all about Avatar, and I keep saying, "Well, you know, it's the first time I've had a tail," um, and I think it's the first time I've been blue. Uh, in a film. And then this morning, I was I was talking to my wife, telling her a story from my childhood, and I realised it's not the first time. I've been blue with a tail um, because I should explain now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was about 15, 16, I can't remember exactly, but I'm, I'm from Blackpool, you know, and um, outside Blackpool Tower, one of the jobs you could, you know, you could put out the deck chairs or work on the donkeys or work at the pleasure beach, which I did on a test your strength hammer stall and a fortune telling machine. But one job I had for about a week once was I was handing out leaflets outside Blackpool Tower dressed as Huckleberry Hound. Who is blue with a ta with a tail? And it seems I've never told my wife this. She's like, "What?" Where did she? And my wife's friend, she doesn't know Huckleberry Hound, so I had to Google Huckleberry Hound and show her that. And she was like, "This is fantastic! I love him! Oh my God, you were dressed as him!" And I was like, "Yeah." And, I was like, and she said, "Why did you only do it for a week?" I said, "Because I was attacked too often 
she said, who was attacking you? I was like, well, a lot of drunk Glaswegian boys, really, because they'd see a huckleberry hound in the town centre, and their natural instinct, understandably, was to attack it and, and <laughs> tip me on my face. They'd, they'd kind of get the tail, which had a sort of reinforced strut under it, under my crotch, and they'd yank that up, and I'd go flat on my face. Um, <laughs> none of this is relevant, is it? <laughs> That's amazing. That is genuinely amazing. Yeah. So just just to confirm things, just to just because you know what the internet's like, David, and yes. scuttlebutt will get out there, and this will be misreported. You are not playing Huckleberry Hound in Avatar Two. I, I'm not not technically, but I think I might have been, uh, you know, channeling that somewhere um, <laughs> subconsciously because I didn't have this memory until this morning. But maybe when I was looking at the screens when we were making the film, and I saw myself blue with the tail, maybe something came back to me. I don't know. We'll have to wait until we see the <laughs> film. And see what my accent. I've got like a North Carolina accent. Um, I'm gonna have to run. The, I'm gonna have to run this one by Jim Cameron, and uh, I'll probably get into it. He's like, "What the hell are you saying?" I can't. Well, Pandora is a big place. It has its home to yeah. all sorts of creatures. Come Why on. not Huckleberry Hound? Yeah. And if there's anyone out there uh, listening yeah. who does want to do a motion capture version of Huckleberry Hound, I've got, I've got history. You know, I've got previous. <laughs> He's got a microphone. He can do his own lines. Yeah, it's all yeah. it's all fine. Yeah. Um, so you you have Huckleberry Hound in your in your in your life. You're playing Jim Davis, but not the creator of Garfield. Uh, so yes. just to get that established as well. But um, he, you know, he is he's English uh, in this. Was that something that came about as a result of of the conversations with Atom, or uh, are it, you that you know? Do, can you shape the character? It was it was always in there that he was uh, English. I think when I when I read it. I, because uh, it wasn't clear what his accent was. And I think, and, and I, I think I said to Adam at that first meeting, I said, you know, could he, is it possible he could be English? Because I'm not a big fan of doing an American accent, I must say, as you've probably noticed by not ever seeing me do it, apart from once very badly. Um, and, um, and he said, but he, he is English. That's why I was thinking of you. He said, you know, I wrote it English in mind. And I was like, oh, well, this is, this is, this is wonderful. And then I thought, well, I'll do it in a Northern English accent. You don't often hear Northern English accents in American mm. uh, pieces, unless I do them. Um, so, so uh, <laughs> I mean, it's Canadian, not American, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, True. because yeah. it's about, he's, he's, he's an immigrant and he's, and then his wife is uh, Brazilian and mm. we have this, daughter who's very beautiful and uh, you know whether it's plausible she's my daughter um uh, i think so um i think so yes yes because you know she's got yeah she's got my stature um and um <laughs> yeah but he, he was he was all always english and that's part of the the you know one of the themes of of, of the film because all the restaurants that he uh, visits are all um you know foreign restaurants are all because we shot in hamilton uh, where, where there's a, a big migrant population, uh, and I think it's something you, you want to explore as well as, a, as another. Th so, mm. many, so many themes happening in this film, but that's just something else you want to touch upon. Mm. I don't think there's an entry for this in the Guinness Book of Records, but there probably should be, uh, which is that you are the actor who, who, and I might be wrong about this, but you're the actor who has been decapitated most on screen. I believe so. I believe yeah. so. Yeah, there's no entry for it, and it's a very hard thing to Google because nobody has ever collated this information. <laughs> I don't know. How do you measure it? I don't know. You'd have to go through every single actor's uh, CV and, and and find it out. But I I have five times I've counted, uh, which seems an awful five. Lot. Five, yeah. I think it's five. What are the five? It, I, 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 oh God, I've got to test it now. Uh, well, Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. Uh, timeline. 
Mm-hmm. The Omen. Famously, yeah. Uh, the uh, uh, remake of The Omen. Uh, my own film, I cheated a bit here because my own film, Cheeky, that I directed, there was a dream sequence and I, we suddenly didn't have the budget to do what I wanted to do with the dream sequence, which was basically to set Blackpool Tower on fire. Um, <laughs> so instead I had this big mechanical mouth biting my head off because I had the head from Timeline because I've got these heads. Apart from the one on Kingdom of Heaven, because if anybody wants to go and check these things, that's actually my head. That's me. Uh, it's not. It's not a, 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 a prosthetic head, because uh, Ridley Scott wanted it to be me. So I was buried up to my neck in the Sahara Desert, surrounded by silicon prosthetic heads. Um, but it's actually my head, and so I've got like a little bit of silicon around my neck to look, make it look like my head's cut off. And, <sighs> but I was very, very uncomfortable because I was actually in in the middle of the Sahara for about two hours. And then Ridley came along to do a little camera test on it and said, we need more flies. It looks great, but we need more flies. So they took little bits of bloody meat and tuna around my ears. I said, right, that's all right. And yeah, it's horrible. And, uh, and the rest <laughs> oh, of the Jesus. cast thought it was hysterical because, of course, there's this decapitated talking head on the floor going, can I get a glass of water? And it looked very funny, <laughs> I guess. But I was in a miserable mood going, oh, I'm sure it's all hysterical to you lot because you see this little head on the floor getting angry at you all because you have a drink glass of water for five minutes and they're like, oh, look at Thewlis. But anyway, so that's that one. Um, uh, I was see this a short film I did years ago. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, in other ways where you saw, you didn't see me get my head cut off, but you saw the aftermath of it. That's it. Is that so five? What, yeah. Is this, this, this can't be coincidence. This must be something that you're seeking out. You know, was there, was there a period in your career where it's basically Thewlis will do the script, but he will only do it if, his character gets decapitated. But it's a, it's a family drama. He doesn't care. Yeah. He wants to be decapitated. Well, it's interesting now. I wonder if something was sent my way that I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And I got to like page 18. It's, oh, he gets his head cut off. Oh, yeah, I'm going for it. <laughs> I, I might, it might sometimes sway my decision. Or, you know, I might see if I can work it. In. Like, you know, maybe I can persuade the guys who do Big Mouth to see if I can get decapitated in that, because it's animated and he could still be alive. Is 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 the personification of shame. So sounds like being decapitated might be quite, fit. And, you know, I could maybe go, could I get one in that? I'll definitely get it up to six. And, <laughs> and I've, I'm, I'm onto my agent if see if I can play Anne Boleyn or Mary, Queen of Scots um, at the National. <laughs> it's got to be on film. But, you know. Uh, you know, listen, if you do, if you want to do it on stage, if you want to do it, you know, just a, as a general hobby, however you get your kicks, it's, it's not up to me. I Whatever know, it's, a, it's a funny obsession. I've, I've just written a novel as well in which there's an actress who claims to be the most decapitated uh, actress in, 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 in the business. And, and there's quite a few references to decapitation in the book. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't really, what's going on? <laughs> so you, so you've written a novel? Yeah, I, I finished it. I, I wrote one years ago called The Late Hector Kipling. It was out in 2007. I wasn't thinking to write another one. And in fact, I wrote it because Atta McGoyan told me to write it because I had an idea for a film and I showed him the idea. And he said, you know what, this is it's not a film, it's a book. You must write this as a book. And, uh, and I started it pretty much there and then while I was in Toronto. And I finished it and handed it in on the day Boris announced lockdown. But I wanted to ask very, very quickly in terms of, you know, sticking on this topic of, of severed heads, um, about the omen decapitation. What are your memories of, of, of that? I, I don't think I knew what it was going to be until I saw the production design and turned up in this village and was like, oh, that's what we're doing. It was, it was a big, yeah, it was a sign that flipped over, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I know it's, I know it's um, 
I think it's on YouTube though, because I've seen it in slow motion. It's or it's it's, it's, a, it's been turned into a GIF or something. I've, I've, I'm quite familiar with that. One. <laughs> and and that interesting. That's that's the best of the heads uh, of the heads I've got. That's that's the that's the best one. That's very well made. And they age, you know, silicon ages. So the the first one, the one from Timeline, now looks a lot older than me. It's a bit, it's a bit um, wow. uh, Dorian Gray like, and, and it's, it's. <laughs> although that's the one I used in my own film as well, so I threw that one around a bit, and the eye came out. So, and that one looks <laughs> more like my dad. But the other one is stay, that one is staying young. So one's one's got older than me, and one has, has remained in, in his thirties. I, I have to ask. Um, I promise I will ask about something other than decapitation. <laughs> but where do you keep these heads? Well, I they're 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 in my flat in London, uh, and I used to keep them out. Um, but I was made to put them away quite recently by, by my wife and my daughter and, and people who just found it unpleasant, on, on really. Because I used to, I, you know, I used to like put one in the fridge on a place of raspberry sauce or something, or, or leave it in a guest bed or something. And people like that's terribly funny. And other people are like, you know, it's really not because they're so realistic. You could really fucking fuck someone up with that. Because they are, they're very well done. You know, they really, they really look real. And no one who yeah. is not expecting it would expect it not to be real. So you could actually give someone a heart attack. So I, I was made to stop that behaviour. And now they're in a bin liner in the hallway, in the in the stairwell in the hall. Um, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And, and therefore, they've been in there for quite a while now. So I don't know. I should get them out because they might be deteriorating. I might be. Terrified when I get them out. They may have. <laughs> what the hell is that? Yeah, because there's, there's, two, there's two in one bag, and I should just check they haven't sort of molded into each other to create some amorphous oh blob of Thulis decapitation. <laughs> like that. There's a title. Like that thing yeah. from the thing. Yeah. Where they've, they've melted yeah. together. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah that that would be that would be quite interesting. Um, and, and David, I'm going to let you go now, but I just want to ask one last thing about Avatar two, three. I don't know whether there's four or five, and you know, but uh, I know that uh, Jim Cameron's going to go back soon to start shooting in New Zealand. That's is, is the plan. That, is that he arrived you, yesterday? I think. Okay. Yeah. Are, are you are you heading over at any point, or are you are you, have you completed your your stuff? No, I, I'm not. I'm not involved in New Zealand. I I would imagine. I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine that some of the live action sequences, because most of the motion capture is shot. In, in, in Los Angeles on the stage there at Jim Studios in Manhattan Beach. I actually don't know what they're shooting in New Zealand. Also, I should say, because it's been misreported recently, I'm not in Avatar 2. I'm in Avatar 3. But because ah, okay. they were shot concurrently, um, um, you know, we, we all made them at the same time. And I don't know what the status of Avatar 3 is. And I believe, or so Jim has told me, I will be in Avatar 4 and 5. But for now, I'm in Avatar 3, and it's a fairly small part for now. It's a little guest appearance. It's nothing. I'm not driving the the plot. I am driving something, but I, I, you, you, you'll have to see. I'm driving something. I'm, 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 I'm piloting something quite bizarre. I'll leave you with that teaser. <laughs> thing is, we won't see Avatar 3 for at least three years. Yeah, from exactly. Reckon, so that's so. a long time to try and work out what I mean by that. But I am, I yeah. am, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm piloting something, let's say. Um, the likes of which have never been seen, and certainly by me, certainly by me, and and and, and I'm blue with a tail, of course. You just for very briefly on on Jim Cameron, is he one of the directors who Mike Lee hasn't spoiled for you? Because I imagine Jim Cameron is working with him must be something else as well. He's a real phenomenon, that guy. I mean, he's you know I I heard a few stories. He was going to be hard work, and he's not hard work at all. He's he's just really really committed and passionate, and he's not just a director. You know, he's he's a He's a scientist. He's an engineer, and he's 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 just everything on that set. 
Uh, and he's a great, great communicator, and he's tireless, and he's politically sound. He's absolutely it's the greenest set I've ever worked on. You know, to talk about green sets, but that is authentically as green as it could possibly be. The thought of everything. Um, and uh, what an adorable man. I just, I just really loved it. It was very brief, like I say. So far, it's been very brief. It was too brief. But um, he's, he's one of the most committed, passionate human beings I've ever met. And, you know, just to ensure him for the length of time it's going to make these films, because nobody else could make them, I don't think. If anything happened to Jim, God forbid, um, I don't know who else could do what he does. It's, it's, it's mm. you know, this is Jim Cameron. It's here. Yeah. And, it's, it's, it's and I don't think that can be passed on. I guess it must be because how do you get insured for that? But I don't know who they would bring in. And Mike Lee, maybe, could, uh, could, could do it. <laughs> Mike Lee's avatar. <laughs> I am totally there. Yeah. I am totally there. Yeah. That'll be, uh, bring back Johnny, yeah. piloting something indescribable. Yes. Wondering what the hell has happened. How has he got there? <laughs> Let, I would yeah, love w- that. Watch this space. Yeah. Watch this space, indeed. Uh, on that note, on the uh, you've just bumped off Jim Cameron and replaced with Mike Lee. And on that note, I think it's a good time to let you go, David. Okay. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so All much. All right, Chris. Thank you, mate. Take care. Okay, so that was David Hewless. And now let's move swiftly on to listener questions. We have a good one this week. It comes from at Nigel Lockett 2. And he asks, what's the greatest use of fruit in the movies? So the problem with this is that most of the most memorable uses of fruit, aside from maybe Carmen Miranda's headgear, um, are sex related. Um, so there's there's uh, face off. <laughs> the look there's on face off where he right can now. eat a peach for hours. <laughs> there's obviously another peach incident in Call Me by Your Name. Call me and- by your name. Oh, <laughs> and there's the use of the grapefruit in Girl Strip. Mm. Also, nine and a half weeks, they get a bit they uh, do get frisky with the fruit. Yeah. Strawberries in particular. Yes, indeed. And, uh, and is, it, is it Hot Shots 1 or Hot Shots 2? Hot Part Shots two. 1, I think. <laughs> yes. Little sizzling Great. belly. Yeah, it's got to be the first one. He's my, frying an egg in her stomach and, and whatnot. My mind is not as dirty as Helen's, so my... <laughs> I oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I initially went to Bananas in the Tailpipe. Beverly Hills Cop. Yes. We need to preserve that statement in amber. My mind is not as dirty as Helen's, so I went immediately to the banana in the tailpipe. Well, I'm on. My oh. word. My word. Uh, please explain. <laughs> banana's tailpipe. I don't any more explanation than that? Good grief. Um. Yes. <laughs> I think you can also, there's a double bill in Beverly Hills Cop. It's obviously when he puts the bananas in the exhaust pipe of the car with police officers in it to, to disable it. But then also in the same film, he throws Jonathan Banks through a kind of fruit salad bar as well. And I'd say, so mm. that Beverly Hills Cop wins mm. for just general yeah. fruitage. I also... Yes. I also like um, the bit in Doctor Strange when he makes an apple disappear and reappear. Pretty cool. That's good. I was trying to think of something to do with apples and I couldn't think. And I was, I was visualizing my mind an apple decaying and I couldn't think of it. So, yeah, well done mm. for that. Yes. Isn't it an apple pie in American Pie that's <laughs> hanging off Jason Biggs' yes. bits? <laughs> Felt like getting to third base whilst we're on the subject of sex. Um, yes, uh, of course, Helen's mind would immediately go to the gutter uh, on what? this. But the uh, the peach, the peach from Call Me by Your Name is iconic. Uh, you know that peach 
nearly had its own spin-off. Uh, it's incredible, and I hope it comes back for the sequel. Uh, slightly the worse for wear, obviously, but, you know, still. Uh, the Banana in the Tailpipe, um, <laughs> in case people don't know, is from Beverly Hills Cop, and uh, that's amazing, but don't try it at home. So when Axel Foley puts a banana in the... In the um, exhaust pipe tailpipe is what they call it in the states of uh tigert and rosewood and so it means they can't get away so they can't get away to follow him so it's ingenious it's an ingenious use of a banana so well done to axel foley i also i mean i'm, I'm not sure you'd call this one sort of the best uses of fruit but denethor eating grapes and uh i think it's return of the king i don't know it's the two towers mm. one of the two is is really sort of memorable that scene where he sent he sends Fireman off to die, and mm. uh, Pippin is singing. I remember mostly the meat in that scene. It's really gross looking and kind yeah. of yeah. grisly and. Ugh. Isn't there isn't there fruit really delectable grapes as well on the table in Pan's Labyrinth? Isn't it mm-hmm. a grape that she eats, that Ophelia eats, that kind of uh, triggers the Pale Man, and he, he opens his weird handless, eyeless face, and he has his eyes. Anyway, that that nightmare fuel sequence uh, that whole thing i think that's the uh, with the with the forbidden banquet of course mm-hmm. so that's that's very much up there as well but yeah i think banana the tailpipe is going to win this one at the moment unless there's a peach in labyrinth that turns into the crystal ball remember no just me as we discussed on either last week or the week before's episode mm-hmm. labyrinth i've seen once and i i, I don't, don't i don't know that film at all anyway there's a peach that turns into a crystal ball it's cool I would proffer the death of Don Vito Corleone, uh, not when he gets shot against a fruit stand, which of course he does, but when he is using sort of uh, orange peels to humorous effect with his grandson in the garden. <laughs> exactly that, before he keels over. <laughs> uncanny Christmas. Oranges are bad news for him, huh? Uh, oranges, of course, um, I'm sure people are screaming this at the, uh, at the podcast right now, oranges in The Godfather are a signifier of death. Um, yes. So, you know, their use is not accidental. Uh, you know, that's why he falls into the orange stand when he gets shot. And that's why he's eating oranges and peeling oranges. We also have to mention, uh, there's one scene in 22 Jump Street, which is for me, one of, one of the funniest scenes of all time, uh, when Ice Cube goes to the buffet and just massacres it. And I'm pretty sure yes. there's a line where it's like, <laughs> you like fruit? I like food, and then he smashes it onto the plate. It's amazing. That scene always <laughs> makes me laugh. The first time I saw that in the screening, I was literally in tears for like a good two minutes. I couldn't stop laughing. It was amazing. What's the pie in Stand By Me? Is it blueberry? Blueberry, blueberry pie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm going to throw yeah. that one in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there was some contention about whether we should discuss this, but uh, we, we can discuss things whilst not approving of them. And it, there is the scene in The Public Enemy, uh, which was in Nigel Lockett's question. He was, apart from the grapefruit in the face, which is when James Cagney mushes a grapefruit into May Clark's face in The Public Enemy. May Clark was always upset because it basically overshadowed the whole rest of her career. Um, she never kind of escaped the shadow of that scene. It was always like, oh yeah, she's the wife and in The Public Enemy. It's, you know, it's not a great look, really. I mean, she was in Frankenstein. So uh, He didn't smash a, or the, the creature. Uh, they didn't smash grapefruits into her face. Some people said that was improv, but I did a little bit of research around that scene, and it turns out that you know, they they knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to know is, was it a real grapefruit? Because that stuff will sting. Anyway. Mm. As they found out in Girls Trip. <laughs> As they found out in Girls Trip, indeed. <laughs> um, are dates a fruit? Yes. Then Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, mm. good call. Good show. Monkey dates. Mm-hmm. 
bad, bad dates. dates. We've all been on them. <laughs> <laughs> With frankly similar effect. <laughs> all right, so let me see what else I've got written down here. I had oranges in the Godfather, banana in the tailpipe, bad dates and raiders, the peach from Call Me by Your Name. Call me, call me. We had blueberry pie puke in Stand by Me, and I'm going to also suggest the fruit and veg gremlin in Gremlins too. Mm, tasty. <laughs> <laughs> the tastiest gremlin by far. Any more for any more? Well, I mean, I guess we should mention Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Iconic yeah. apple and all. Iconic apple. <laughs> and of course, Steve Jobs for a more iconic apple. <laughs> <laughs> Two iconic uses of apples swinging in at the end there to maybe steal it. But uh, yeah, it's banana and tailpipe. <laughs> Just don't try it at home, kids. So that's what we've learned. There's nothing more funny than having a banana in your tailpipe and a bad date will kill your monkey. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. All right, so we do have a second question, and this was sent to me just before we started recording. Uh, so uh, you guys haven't uh, seen this question or don't know about this question, but this comes from at Shane Sweeney 13 and he asks, with all the protests around the world against police brutality, do you think that Hollywood will move away from films? And I'm going to throw in TV shows as well, because I'd like to talk about some TV shows that have cops as heroes. And do you think we should re-examine our relationship with existing films that have hero cops? In short, yes. Um, the longer answer is that I think it's a it's a crutch and uh, an easy go-to and uh, a popular genre for for TV and film to, to focus on cops because, you know, we like clear lines of right and wrong and we like mysteries and a, a lot of cop shows are mystery shows. Um, a lot of cop shows are, you know, action shows. These are these are popular genres. They're easy ways into these genres. Um, and you know, let's face it, private detectives are not really a thing anymore. We don't kind of believe in those as a credible sort of alternative to just the cop show. I think the problem is that a lot of these shows are terribly unnuanced. There was actually a study done years ago, and I'm sorry, I don't have their citation to hand, but people who'd watched Law and Order a lot, who then got called for jury duty, handed down tougher sentences. They tended to be more credulous of uh, DNA evidence and, and you know, ex expert uh, quote-unquote testimony. Um, they tended to be more credulous of anything the cop said. It had a measurable effect on real world justice. The fact that, you know, it was a great TV show. It was a handy case of the week, you know, often exploring hot button issues, but it, it built people people's trust in the police to a level where it had a, a deleterious impact on, on, you know, defendants' rights. So that's the danger. There is a genuine danger that in all of this adulation of cops that we kind of have in these shows, that it has a real world effect on us. Um, and, and we've seen that, I think, play out. And that's been one of the things that's, that's played into um, the situation, especially in the US, but even here as well. So yeah, it's not as uncomplicated as that, I think, is the thing. No one's saying there aren't good people in the police force. Of course there are. No one's saying there aren't people who do great work in the police force. Of course there are. But to say that, you know, that the force as a whole is unquestionably a good thing is a big, big leap. And I think that's what a lot of these shows do. You know, The Wire or something like that. NYPD Blue even. These are really, really nuanced shows that actually give us a lot to kind of think about and to work with. But some of the kind of lower end cop shows are really not nuanced and they give us this very 
one-sided view of what law and order means and what it looks like. Law and order with a small L, small O, as opposed to the TV show itself. And so that's what leads to things like the cancellation of the cop show this week in in, uh, America, which I think is actually a very good thing because that show in particular is problematic. Wow. Um, Yeah, no, I I think absolutely. I I mean, there is a, someone was mentioning this on Twitter the other day, that there's a a lack of uh, heroic-based shows about internal affairs mm-hmm. within police, because infernal, internal affairs are always seen as sort of like, you know, they're the rats, they're like the enemy and stuff. I mean, Line of Duty is one of the notable exceptions, because that's entirely based around an anti-corruption unit. But it is genuinely seen that the police are trying to do their job and keep justice by bending the rules, and these pesky internal affair people keep getting in the way. L- lethal weapon, um, right? Which I'm well, yeah, indeed, indeed, that as well. Um, you know, I, I like sh- I like cop shows that do show the shades of grey. I like Nuance the Shield is one of my favourite cop shows, and that is a show entirely about baked in corruption and prejudice, um, and with an anti heroic cop at the section at the centre of it. But yeah, there is a. It, I think I think you're right, Alan. I think it's less to do with us, you know, idealising cops as an institution and i think it is more born out of just the narrative appeal of telling police stories that that people want to people you know the institution of the police is supposed to exist to protect you from bad things and that's a very simple very easy narrative to tell Uh, and people like to see you know bad people brought to justice and the police are a good method of doing that you know uh in the same way i guess that you know superheroes and vigilantes they perform the same purpose but a little bit you know less officially um so i don't think we'll see the end of that format of storytelling but i think cops in particular is a is a is a problematic case because that's a you know that's not fictional that's a real world ride-along type thing and it does sort of lionize the police in a way and suddenly if you read a lot of ride-along stories that don't feature on that show but have been written about elsewhere the actual I think reality of day-to-day policing is very different Mm -hmm. to what you see on that show. I agree with all of that. Um, And, you know, a lot of what is happening in the world right now is obviously negative, but art imitates life. And I think we're going to see a lot of interesting stories from what is going on right now. And Mm -hmm. I think um, if we sort of get that nuance in films and TV shows when it comes to cops, then that would be useful. I completely agree in that. I even think that now, given what's happening, shows which don't have that are going to be sort of, you know, playing with fire because I think people will sort of hold them to account more now. Um, So hopefully it will give rise to better art as opposed to uh, just cancelling stuff which doesn't work right now. Yeah. There, there was a great suggestion on Twitter this week, and apologies, I don't remember who said it, but someone said that without explanation, the next season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine should just take place in a post office. I mean, don't explain yeah. it. Don't talk about it. Just yeah. I, I have a slight issue with stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, I don't think that Brooklyn Nine Nine needs to apologise for being what it is. Um, and uh, you know, Brooklyn Nine Nine has tackled things like racism within the police force and it you know even yeah. even though it is a silly comedy it has tackled serious serious issues in the past um, and i'm sure it will again think, actually i'm sure it will again i think it's going to be impossible for shows like brooklyn 99 and law and order svu i know warren late the showrunner of svu is uh, a very socially conscious guy um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that reacts to what's happening right now, reacting mm-hmm. to police brutality and reacting to the way that the 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 um, heavy handedness, to you know, to, you know, to say the least, of the the police reaction to the protests in the states. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Um, I think Hollywood has 
made films in which cops are conflicted and in which cops are anti-heroes and which cops aren't the heroes, and which cops are the villains. You know, you, you could point to a dozen films right now off the top of my head that hold cops feet to the flames. Um, and don't portray them as as paragons of virtue. Uh, Bad Lieutenant, obviously, <laughs> being one of them. Bad Lieutenant, Portocol, New Orleans is another one. Training Day is another one. Um, you know, Serpico, Sidney Lumet's Serpico. Most of Sidney Lumet's police films actually mm. are about corruption, Copland. brutality in the police force. James, yeah, James Mangold has Copland, been brilliant yeah. on Twitter this week about you know portraying uh, corruption in the police force and uh, and how it can solidify and, and calcify. Um, he's been great on, on Copland, which is a fantastic film. So I don't think we need to re-examine those movies. I don't know that we need to re-examine things like Die Hard. The point about, you know, things like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard is that they do have, to some extent at least, they have the, you know, the the maverick cop who has to buck the system to get the job done um, trope, which, mm. look, I love those movies and I'm never going to cancel those movies or, or, you know, stop watching them like in, in all likelihood. But there is a problem in the sort of message that some people take from that the message that they take that the rules don't really matter if you're if you're you know in the cause of righteousness um and that you get to define what is right now i know i'm on thin ice here because i've said that captain america gets to do just that but um i think there is there is a danger in those kind of movies in that they encourage a certain kind of cop to believe that he is Martin Riggs and he does get to decide um, and that he is on the side of truth and justice in the American way. Um, that's, I think that's the problem with those movies and that's the, the way, that's why we maybe have to have half an eye to reality when we watch that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that I think Hollywood will move away from films that are um, simplistic and uh uh, you know, it's entirely up to you. As we've said before about things like this, your mileage may vary on how you want to reinterpret and re-examine your relationship with existing films. So, if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, as at Nigel Lockett two and at Shane Sweeney thirteen found to their cost, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Where, uh, well, it's mainly Twitter these days. Let's be honest. Uh, you can either just get in touch with me directly at Chris Hewitt or at Emperor Magazine on Twitter. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. My DMs are also open which is dangerous but so far uh, I've, I've been okay and uh, uh, so you can slide into my DMs and ask questions as well as indeed Shane Sweeney did alright time for one more guest and we'll call it a day for this part of the podcast uh, should we have another British thesp guys yeah why not why not indeed this time is Richard Armitage a man who has played a dwarf and Wolverine now that is range and he is displaying that range to great effect with a new audiobook out this week on Audible it's entitled The Chekhov Collection of Short Stories and it is a collection of short stories by Anton Chekhov just in case you were wondering (laughs) and the book is not only Armitage's idea but he recorded it all himself in a little fort from which he spoke to me earlier this week at his home in New York. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about his love of Chekhov, not the bloke from Star Trek. We talked about Captain America, in which he appeared briefly, and all sorts. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast in lockdown, of course, because we're we're socially responsible by Richard Armitage. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm in a, I'm in a little <laughs> fort, <laughs> a little cupboard. <laughs> 
you are. I mean, this is this is this isn't being recorded visually, so I'll describe. Richard is not lying. He is in your you're in your wardrobe at the moment, and you've got blankets well, around. I you. was in a wardrobe, but I've shifted locations now, so um, I'm actually in a hallway with um, a clothes rail and some packing blankets that I've stapled to the wall <laughs> and kind of cushions everywhere to sort of stop the reflection and, and a, a little plug-in LED lamp so that I can see. But it's great. It's working really well. I'm enjoying it. And so this is your, your fort that you've constructed yourself so it that is. you can continue yes. to work uh, whilst on lockdown. Yeah. With a, with a little bit of help from my friends, uh, Sean Dooley and Jacob Dodman, who really helped me figure out what equipment to buy and sent me videos of how to set up pro tools and so yeah lots of uh, lots of actors helping out helping each other out to keep working this is amazing because I, I've I've interviewed a number of actors over the last. Uh, in fact, we got Rosamund Pike on this week's episode as well, and I asked her exactly the same question. You know, as an actor, you have this impulse to create, and that's been taken away from you. You can't go on stage. You can't. You can't shoot a film. You can't shoot a TV show. Uh, so some people, some actors, I can imagine, might be lost. And you have come up with this perfect remedy by recording this audiobook, this 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 collection of Chekhov short stories, and and creating. Your little fort, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I I've been, I've been doing it for quite a while now, and I think um, it's it's always a little bit underestimated. You know, audiobooks and are sort of seen as a thing that actors do in between jobs to fill in the time. But I've really enjoyed doing them over the years, and and actually, this was a perfect opportunity to really understand the technology and be able to work from home. And and even when the studios go back, I'm probably going to continue working from home I'm, I'm actually getting a slightly more permanent setup of a studio because i love working in my own time and being able to get up at you know if i can't sleep in the middle of the night i can go into the studio and just keep keep reading and uh, it's it's been a, a, a real lifeline during lockdown, I have to say. I guess that speaks to the idea with this collection in particular, because as you say, you have, you've recorded audiobooks before and you've been doing it for a number of years now. Uh, but with this collection in particular, you seem to be the driving force. It was your choice to do this, your choice, your selection of the stories as well. Yeah, I mean, I was working on Uncle Vanya, directed by Ian Rickson in the West End. Um, and during the the preparation for the show I'd read a lot of the Chekhov short stories and um, as a way to kind of understand the playwright and during the run I suddenly thought this would be a really good idea to try and incorporate uh, some stories for Audible in connection with the with the play because I was sort of in a world of of Chekhov and I thought oh it's another way for people that maybe that couldn't get to see the play that they could mm. kind of hear some of Chekhov's writing and then, of course, lockdown happened and the theatre closed down. And uh, it became even more important because we were still looking for ways to try and rejuvenate that production. But but in the meantime, I felt that it was a good idea to sort of push this through uh, almost as a, as a little sweetener for people that had maybe had their tickets cancelled or something just to try and, you know, keep the, the stories alive. And, you know, I, I love Chekhov and these, sto- these stories were great. So, so it happened. A lot of these stories you were discovering for the first time as you were preparing for Uncle Fania. Is, is that is that correct? Some of them, yes. Yeah. Some of them I was familiar with, and uh, uh, like the kiss, for example, that was a it's a little favourite of mine. But um, certainly for Vanya, I was I'd looked at Ward Six, which actually was Audible's choice, and I completely understand why they chose it. But um, the idea of uh, of a kind of insane asylum. <laughs> 
and a, and a doctor and a patient I just felt was not only relevant for the character I was playing, but it feels relevant for the times we're living in. Mm, yeah, very much so. I feel like we're living we're living in a, an insane asylum where we've all <laughs> become. We all thought we were the doctors, and suddenly we're we're the patients, we're the inpatients. It's just strange, isn't it? We are. We are. We're living in a short story, or yeah. you know, actually, a story that seems without end at the moment. But I know. <laughs> you never please know. Say, please say the end. <laughs> are you? Yeah, usually I don't get that in an interview until at least 10 minutes in, so <laughs> please stop this. Please, please, please stop. the end. Please, please free me stop. from my misery. Um, but I'm fascinated by how, how you do this and your, your technique and your approach to, to audiobooks, uh, which are becoming huge these days as well. Um, and you see these as full-blown well, maybe not full blown, but you see these as performances. You know, this is a real chance for the for the actor in you to to play a multitude of characters. Yeah, it's true. I I never saw it that way really. I just started reading, and I mean, one of the first audiobooks I ever did was um, was Robin Hood when I was working on Robin Hood, and um, <laughs> obviously I had access to all of the characters' voices because I was working with them every day. And I thought, well, you know why not just go there with every character and it just evolved from there that it's not really it doesn't quite impact if you just read the words you sort of have to get into the world of the story and I, I you know I'm not sure how any other actor approaches it but but as the as the reader you become the director so you set the scene you get to play all the characters so you can kind of direct the characters to to how how you'd like them to to sound and you're relying mm. on the author to give you a good description of them but um it's it's something i i just really enjoy and, and every time i read something my my imagination is triggered so i just go into my own little world and and perform the characters and, and actually it's given rise to some interesting developments for me personally because i've i've optioned a couple of titles that i've read and i'm developing them now as television shows so these are the uh, the joy ellis books is that is that the joy ellis books and, and also um the taking of annie thorne by cj tudor they're both books that I, I was very passionate about and I've taken them into um, into early production development, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best on Thank that. You. And in terms of in terms of that performance, in terms of playing multiple characters uh, in <clears throat> in the Jack of Short Stories or indeed in, in the novels that you've read as well, how do you do it? Because full disclosure here, occasionally I will read a book out loud to my wife just as a as a way of, you know, keeping ourselves entertained. And sometimes a few days will elapse between reading one chapter and then going back to it. And I can never remember the voices I do. So, so they, <laughs> um, they, they vary wildly. Do you have a chart? Is it instinct? How does, how does it work? How do you keep track? Yeah, I, I, I suffer from the same thing, especially if, for example, with Joy Ellis, the, there's seven books that I've read and sometimes there's a year or six months that passes between the reading. So I do rely on the producer to say, I can't quite remember what that character <laughs> sounded like. And, and also I've sort of moved now from... You know, it, to me, it's not an exercise in sort of showing off how many different dialects I can do. It becomes much more kind of tonal or, um, you, you know, pitch oriented so that you, sometimes too many accents can just distract the the listener. So um, the, the, the performances have become slightly more subtle over the years. And, and that's tricky as well, because I mean, I usually put myself as a as one of the voices so the the character that feels like the base narrator i usually use a version of myself mm -hmm. um because you're usually narrating and commenting you're also the author's voice so you you kind of have to live in that area but 
you know, when you use Pro Tools, I, I make a note of um, the, the first reference for the character. So, I, you, but before I learned how to do that, I would make notes in a book to just give the quality of the voice and, and then the subtle accent that I'd chosen. So, yeah, you do, you do have to make notes. Oh, that's interesting. I, I thought maybe you had like a, a a tape, a series of tapes. You would just listen to one very, very quickly, get a refresher course. That's how that guy sounds, and then go for it. Yeah, I mean to be honest as well, I, I, um, I, you, you can usually remember because the the books that you read are, are, are usually quite high quality. You can usually remember what voices you what you've done because, especially if they're not too planned, if they come out of an instinctive response to the reading, that instinct comes back again when you when you go mm. back in there to read it. I mean, w- with the Charles Dickens, uh, I mean Dickens is a perfect example that. He, his description of the characters are so succinct that the, the voices, I didn't have to plan or think of any of the voices. They just came through reading his descriptions. And Interesting. that's brilliant. Uh, and so talk me through the, the, uh, the Chekhov short stories that, that you've chosen. So there, there are six in this collection. There are six. I'm just pulling up my notes now because <laughs> uh, I will get this wrong. Have um, you forgotten so, already, Richard? What's going on? <laughs> I, there's always one I miss out. So, so Ward Six. There's Ward Six, The Kiss, uh-huh. Betrothed, uh-huh. The Black Monk, uh-huh. Neighbours, not to be confused with the Australian soap, <laughs> and The Student, um, all of which were chosen by myself and actually Ian Rickson, who had directed Chekhov, because I was putting together a, a short list of our favorite stories. And I just said to him, you know, which stories do you like? Because um, I thought it'd be nice to have his opinion on this. So he he gave me his list. And actually, there were a couple that, that crossed over. So there were some that I didn't know and some that I was very familiar with. And so I, I've, that's how I came upon the list. Uh, for philistines like myself who may only know things like Chekhov's gun, the notion of Chekhov's gun in terms of how it pertains to cinema, and of course that Chekhov wasn't Star Trek, different Chekhov, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. Um, what is it about Chekhov that, that has connected with you in such, in such a way? I mean, I was introduced to him when I was at drama school. We did The Cherry Orchard in, in my third year. And, um, y- you know, when you're studying acting, Chekhov, Chekhov comes up because really the root of our work that we do as modern actors came through um, that that school of theatre which was Stanislavski and Chekhov working together um, to create a, a new form of drama which was rooted in a kind of naturalism that wasn't particularly plot driven it was more about characters and and how they how they existed and and it's the thing the thing that I love about Chekhov is that he he doesn't intervene too much and manipulate the character to try and give you a message. He he creates a character and then lets them live on the page. And he does the same thing in the stories. He's observing life rather than pushing an agenda or having a political stance. And actually, he was criticized in his life because um, other writers felt that he was never you know, pushing forward his views on anything, which is sort of the whole point of him. And, you know, he was... Um, a doctor for for most of his time and life and in his spare time his hobby mm. he was a writer i mean he uh, he famously disc- he said you know um medicine is my wife and writing is my mistress you know that he saw it <laughs> as a sort of flirtation with something but but and actually his plays are fewer than his stories but he he gives us something he was writing over 120 years ago but he gives us something an insight into our own lives by looking backwards into a historic writer like Chekhov, but but his observations of the human condition and human spirit are so 
brilliant. They're, they're humorous and they're tragic and they are uplifting. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm deeply moved by them and I find myself laughing at them because they're sort of removed from modern society, yet mm. totally relevant. It's a very long answer to a very short question. Sorry. <laughs> No, it was good. It was, it was fine. You, you think you, you covered off everything, but uh, when people hear the word the name Chekhov, I think sometimes they can they can feel that it's it's going to be heavy going. It's going to be heavy duty. It's going to be hard hitting, quite bleak. I think that's well. That is the traditional receipt of what we think we know about Chekhov, and actually, w the revelation of dip, of performing in Uncle Vanya was that the minute we put it in front of an audience primarily because we had Toby Jones playing on Galvania. So, you know, it was already <laughs> starting to, to sort of fizz that it was an absolute un undoubted comedy it, from, from the minute the play started. And, and none of us quite realized what it, what the, the play was. And, and I think um, finding that slightly cynical humor and, you know, enjoyment of human foible in Chekhov is, I think that's the essence that I that I was looking for, rather than the misery, because he's writing at a time which was which was hard on on his um, his class, and you know he was upwardly mobile, coming from from very little, and so his observations mm. of the bourgeoisie were were quite acid. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. And he was criticised for that, and he was you know he was highly critical of his own profession as a doctor. So um, I, I don't know. He it feels like a human being writing about human beings rather than an intellectual. At making some kind of you know clever statement about it, well, I think that's mm. why it feels so fresh to me. And uh, on the complete opposite end of the scale, going from Chekhov to uh, to Marvel, uh, you mentioned Toby Jones. I mean, obviously, you were both in the first Captain America film, but you were never <laughs> yeah. on screen together. So, <laughs> we did you did you share experiences uh, in the uh, in rehearsals in the dressing rooms? We didn't actually. I mean, I uh, it's a shame we never met, but that's the nature of filming is that you're you're often kept apart. The thing that I was most <laughs> um, surprised at because the the weird thing about doing theatre is you is you know after the play you often go out of the stage door and you greet some fans if if you're lucky and you know so i was having a lot of um thorin oakenshield pictures thrust at me <laughs> and, and i realized toby standing next to me signing pictures of dobby the house house elf and i was like i didn't i didn't realize that you played this character and it suddenly made sense to me and i and i real and i started to see the the animation and see him and then and then, you know, on stage at night, I'd often look over at him and sort of see Dobby the house house elf playing Uncle Vanya, and it just it just cracked me up. And you know, he, he's a great guy. He's such a brilliant person to work with that you know he just doesn't take himself seriously. He takes the work seriously. But we had a great time, and uh, uh, it was it's a shame we didn't meet on Captain America. But, but yeah, <laughs> oh, you were too busy being bumped off very early on. I was too busy chewing on a cyanide tooth. <laughs> Precisely. That was at a time when it was still a huge gamble. It was still, I remember interviewing Chris Evans and he had these hobbit-like things in his feet and there was this feeling that it was just, no one knew how it was going to turn out. You mean um, the, 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 the um, Captain America movie? Yeah. And in fact, and everything that's, that's sprung from that since. That's true. I mean, I guess there was Iron Man, which everyone was, I mean, that wasn't that many years before Captain America, was it? So no, everyone was, a couple. I remember seeing the first Iron Man film and thinking, this is, this is something brand new mm. his performance and and i think that everything sprung from that but uh yeah i mean it was my first experience of really working on a lot of green screen and and, and working on a huge huge set with 200 
cast and crew, you know, were the crew of like hundreds and hundreds of people. So then when I kind of got to New Zealand and started working on The Hobbit, it didn't freak me out in a way that it probably would have done if I hadn't been part of Captain America. So it was a really good training ground for me. But gosh, I can't believe it's 10 years ago. (laughs) Something I feel old. Do you feel old now? I feel very old. I think 2021, (laughs) I'm going to be 50. And that I just can't believe or accept, actually. I'm going (laughs) to completely deny that. How was 40 for you? How was turning 40? 40 was good. I think I might have been in New Zealand or going down there. But yeah, 40 was good. This decade for me has been great. I mean, I've got to say, I don't like 2020 very much, but no, it's terrible. It's been a great time for me. I've got to, for any, any actors out there kind of up and coming or, you know, trying to graduate this year um, that have doubts, you know, it, uh, your twenties feel good, but it can get better. So I'd say my, my, my forties have been creatively the best years of my life. You know what? I'm actually starting to look forward to my 50s because I feel like you can just get fat and go grey <laughs> and be like, I don't, it doesn't matter now because I'm 50. You know, you can <laughs> just just go away and let me be 50. In my little, in my little cupboard here yeah. recording just eating, all by myself. Yeah, eating donuts. Absolutely. But here's the thing, Richard, you can skip 2020. I think we can officially strike 2020 from the record now so technically speaking you won't turn 50 until 2022 so you've got another year true i've got yeah i'm going to give myself another year it's (laughs) been an interesting period though this lockdown you know i think it was almost a choice to make sure you you deal with it well and um as a as a sort of (laughs) semi-introverted slightly antisocial person anyway the, the, (laughs) the social distancing wasn't wasn't that tricky for me and Actually, I've used the time as as well as I could, and you know, try to stay off social media too much, and and be kind of just be quiet for a while. And and uh, you know, I've done a lot of work developing these stories, and done a lot of reading, and uh, it's it's actually not been as bad as I thought it was going to mm. be. I've 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 learned something about myself. Time time to come out of hiding now, though. I think. <laughs> Yeah. Precisely. And then just a couple of last things before I let you go. Um, talking about re- reflecting on your career and this idea that in your 20s, it, it, it can be a struggle. And I, I presume it was a struggle for you in, in, in some ways. Um, you know, looking back, uh, I was looking at your IMDb earlier on. And in this year's love, you're credited as smug, smug man, man at, at party. party. That's who I am. I am a the- smug man at a party. <laughs> that is the definition of where my career started and will probably end. <laughs> But but smug man at party did get punched quite quite you know full on in the face by right. uh, Dougie that's Henshaw. Right. So yeah, that's right. So but how, so do, how do you question? how do you prepare for playing smug man at party? And 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 at the time, what were your feelings about that? I am playing smug man at party, but I'd rather be playing. I'd rather be doing Uncle Fanya. I just you know, how I prepared for it by just being myself. As I said, I'm smug man at party. Um, just improv. You know what? And this is something again. I'm sort of starting t- taking. Steps to try and mentor students and do some work with the, this year's graduates who have had their careers, you know, their career launches stunted. And, and this is something that I would say to any any actor breaking in or, or starting life in the profession is I always prepared every role as if it was a leading character because I I hoped and some somewhere deep down knew that I would be playing a leading character one day and I just mm. needed to keep practicing how I was going to play it and how I would do the preparation. So 
I've got ridiculous notes, maybe not for Smug Man at Party, but for, <laughs> you know, two lines in Casualty. I've got like lots of notes of who the character is, where he was born, where he came from, how he was educated, what he likes, what music does he listen to? Because <laughs> I just felt like create a whole person there so that when you do get the chance to play something more in depth, you've got tools to do it. So, mm. um, and that's the advice. And it's the same with, um, with auditioning for things. I always say, imagine that the, the, the audition they've, they've they've said to you actually someone's dropped out you're going to have to go on and play this role tomorrow either on stage or on film um just give us a taste of what of how you would play it um the, the role's yours but but just give us a, a shot at it so so you oh. fully fully commit to to whatever it is you're doing and and it's the same with with uh, everything that i try to apply myself to now i i throw myself all in and uh equally with audiobooks you know and you, you say some people are a bit nervous about reading and and uh, but you've got to be fully committed and and i think that was maybe that should be on my my tombstone is that he was fully committed because that's how i feel richard armitage has been an absolute pleasure uh, enjoy the rest of the day in your fort thank you chris hewitt thank you cheers <laughs> Okay, so that was Richard Armitage from his little fort and the Chekhov collection of short stories is available now, right now, only on Audible. And that is it for the first part of this week's Bumper Size podcast. Join us in part two, a separate episode, of course, in which I speak to Rosamund Pike and Judd Apatow. We review the week's big releases and we discuss the movie news. Bangly bye? That'll do. Bangly bye. Bangly bye.